coming up on Chopper's Politics. Well, you Chopper, I, 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 sort of, I, 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 most of them recorded here at the Red Lion Pub in Westminster. It's time to finish my coffee, hang up my headphones and leave my favourite stool in the Red Lion Pub for the last time. Yes, my friends, this is it. The last ever episode of Chopper's Politics Podcast. We started back in March 2017, before really political podcasts had got going in this country, as Chopper's Brexit Podcast. We turned into Chopper's Politics Podcast when Brexit became reality and stopped being controversial. Well, sort of. I've interviewed every party leader since 2017, some more than once, and I've tried to tempt them away to share some insight and gossip about their lives away from politics, but also understand what makes them tick. I've loved every single minute of sharing this with you, but as the Beatle George Harrison said, all things must pass. Today, we go out on a bang with a brilliant episode of Chopper's Politics Podcast, a Mount Rushmore of brilliant podcast guests. Comedian Matt Ford and Tory MPs Jacob Rees-Mogg, Michael Gove and Sir Geoffrey Cox. Are you ready? Let's go. Matt Ford, for the final time, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. This is such a privilege to be a part of it. Yeah, well, you're the like 910th guest or something, <laughs> 365 episodes, 8.2 million listens. All things must pass. M- but must they? Chopper, must I, they can't, I can't accept this. I can't no. accept it. I've, I, I, we need you back in some yes, form. Yes, it might rise again. But as for the Telegraph part of, of this involvement in this podcast, it is over. Now, I went to see your show, Spitting Image, It Is Assemble, at the Phoenix Theatre yeah. in, in the West End. It is brilliant. Thank you. And it works in a way which I was sad that I thought the, the BritBox TV version didn't work. It was a bit stilted. Maybe it's no, it wasn't funny. But it's funny. <laughs> it's funny. All the jokes. It's funny because the audience is half cut by half time, and they are laughing, whooping at your. You're just mocking our leaders, and it somehow works. It's cathartic. I think it's really cathartic, and I, I think seeing the puppets live is a completely different experience. I can't believe it was never done before. Really, for me, that's where the natural home of spitting image is on stage. Absolutely, and with them singing and dancing and throwing them together in those yes. mad, yes. you know, Jurgen Klopp fighting Suella Braverman at customs <laughs> yes. and things like that. You know, all those mad things are just so much more anarchic live. And also, I think you can go further live. We carried John Johnson's boobs. Carried Johnson's going, that's boobs. That's the furthest he went, I think. Yeah, and, and well, I think Suella Braverman. Um, yes, as a bat. Uh, pleasuring herself. Oh, oh, yes, sorry, yes, yes, with, a, with an EU passport. Was, was, um, was that what it was? I couldn't see from where my, <laughs> in my seat in the stalls. Uh, and the Jacob Rees Mogg's on this podcast at some point today, and he's a stick insect, and uh, and it's all done by pu- puppeteers. I mean, without being too boring about it, and behind the curtain, the puppeteers are incredible because, yeah. I mean, there are all sorts of physical. I mean, Warhorse isn't. I mean, it was a bit like Warhorse because the same people, but I suppose. yeah, but I, I think it's even more incredible than Warhorse because they're, they're all playing multiple characters, so it's chaos backstage, and of course, it's so physically demanding of them because their arms are in the air, so. 
they're all getting dead arms. They're all cramping up. They're wearing like, these special harnesses. And they're playing Trump and then Boris and then maybe Gareth Southgate and then yeah. Tom Cruise. And they're all... They're in character. And they wear trousers to match the character. So it's a bit like... It's very... If you analyse what's going on, it's very clever. It is. And there are certain angles, depending on where you're sat, where actually you don't see the puppeteer at all. And it is if Tyson Fury or Angela Rayner is stood right in front of you. And the way they make them move, even just the eyes and the hands, and they'll, they'll touch them. It's, it's watching the puppets react to the other puppets. Is yes. That's when it really sings. You're like, oh my God, it's, you, there's part yes. of your brain that's convinced you know, on some level that these things are real and that they're alive. Because the mouths, the mouths move and work, don't they? Yes. And, and the eyes blink. It is like an immersive Disney, sort of, it's like Madame Two Swords has come to life. It's like being in a haunted castle. Yeah, haughty cast like Beauty with. and the Beast type thing, where the, the, the clocks are alive. You and know. there's a few old greatest hits that we remember from the 80s and 90s, aren't there? Some characters, you know, never gone. Even some who are dead appear, reappear. Yeah, and you... I mean, Thatcher is iconic. Mm. The thought of doing spitting image without Thatcher really... Voiced by that guy, Steve? On the live show, it's Deborah Stevenson, okay. who also does The Queen and some of the others, and does an amazing Angela Rayner. Yes, yes. Uh, really comical Angela Rayner. Uh, sorry, Labour MP is telling me that Angela Rayner is better on spitting image than in real life. <laughs> <laughs> she comes across better, more rounded, maybe, than... Well, uh, well, we've got her as a very blunt character. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But she came to the show and met her puppy. Yeah, well, she'd love that. I think she, I think she, you, you, you took the best of her probably and made it better. Yeah. Uh, Keir Starmer, I think, is absolutely brilliant. And I've told people who I meet in the Tory and Labour side to go and watch Spitting Image just for the Keir Starmer because you've completely nailed, for me, why he's not Tony Blair, why he's not cutting through. Can you explain why that is? Well, I think, I think with anything with Spitting Image, it's the marriage of the puppet, the voice, the script... Are you saying the sorts of things that it feels like that person would say and, and the puppeteer? And I think, firstly, the puppet is phenomenal. Yes. And I think it's really captured the shape of his hair. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that he's handsome, yeah. there's a sort of melancholic handsomeness to that puppet. <laughs> and even the way they make the hands move is, is yeah. exactly how he moves. So there's that. Yes. Then there's the voice and that deliberate clenched tooth, yes. slightly blocked nose chopper. <laughs> and the sort of the trailing off at the and you know all those like little touches and people are like oh my and I think I think sometimes with the newer ones and it's the same with the Rainer one is people go oh my god we've not seen spitting image do these people yes. before what a treat to see a, a spitting image yes. treatment of our modern politicians so I think you have to we've made him slightly more verbose than he is because that's yes. the character of Keir Starmer and if you like I felt sort of bewildered by politics it's almost like he's He's, you know, achieved a lot in the world of the DPP. And he's in politics and he doesn't quite understand it. He's, and he's trying to understand it and sort of clenched teeth trying to work out is it yes or no, que- yes or no answer to that question and the rest. Yeah, well, that's, that, that, that was almost like a sort of accidental running joke it's because we would, we would ad lib just sat around with our laptops and you ad lib lines almost in the way that people would write a song. You just sort of muck about. And I'll just do Keir Starmer. So, uh, am I in the script? It's a simple yes or no. no. I'm not sure Keir Starmer's ever actually said that, <laughs> no. but it feels like the sort of thing he That's would say. That's a catchphrase, which if it were, I suppose were on TV, that would be, uh, be repeated in playgrounds as it was in the you know, in the yes. old days. Well, yeah. You say at the beginning, don't you? If you're offended, walk out, because it, you are going to places where... I mean, I think comedy is in crisis, I think, actually. Certainly on the TV, because people can't joke about anything anymore. All the old jokes... If you watch The Office... They make jokes on there you couldn't say nowadays, and I, I just wonder whether you, but you could, you kind of, you clear the decks by saying it's going to be offensive, 
Just you're ready. Yes. And then that gives you the license to go for it, maybe. I, th- I, think you're, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, in a way, you need a sort of welcome message and you're satirising, you know, the sorts of please turn off your phones type thing and then you're, you're making that funny at the start. But I think you're right. I think live, you can just go so much further. And what you realise doing it live, specifically doing Spitting Image, I remember the first few days, because we opened in Birmingham earlier in the year and like, gave it a test run, was actually... You're so used to writing for telly where you, you, there are restrictions on you and you kind of just understand what they are. That Doing it live, we realised we could go way further. And you think, actually, people's stomachs are so much stronger than I know. telly represents. I know. And live, I think this is where people are going to scratch that itch is, is by seeing live comedy, seeing spitting it's, image and seeing stomachs. It felt cathartic. Does humour have to be cruel? I mean, it is a bit cruel, isn't it? Oh, no, I don't think it has to be. I don't think it has to be at all. I think spitting image has to be a little bit cruel. I think if you went to see spitting image and there wasn't a little bit that made you wince, then it wouldn't have done its job. It has to be a little bit cruel. But I don't think all humour has to be. I mean, Tim Vine's my favourite comedian, and there's barely any cruelty there. You know, wordplay's funny and puns are funny. And I think with comedy, I think the same with anything, is it has to be a representation of you in some form like it has to there has to be an honesty to it and I think that relates to politics is is that person really being themselves and I think authenticity isn't about being what everyone wants you to be it's about owning your weaknesses and your strengths and presenting them to the public and I think that's what comedians have to do is if you get a sense that actually I don't, you know, if you thought Tim Vine actually really wanted to be a nasty comedian, you know, if Frankie Boyle all of a sudden just started doing Tim Vine jokes, it wouldn't feel right. No Piers Morgan. He's the obvious one to get a boo, isn't he? There's so many different competing things you're trying to do when you're making a show like Spitting Image Live. Is you obviously want, you need your goodies and your baddies, and it's a panto. And when Tyson Fury beats Farage up, that's a cathartic yeah. moment for people. <laughs> but I think kind of having Farage there... With his testicles. Kind of, I oh know. Um, but having Farage, in a way, meant that we didn't have Piers Morgan and probably Clarkson either. Like, in I a way, Clarkson, of they sort of fulfil that character. Yeah. You couldn't have two or three of those. No, 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 no. Uh, obviously, politics is a, a lot of it, but it is also yes, Anton sorry, Deck. Of course, Anton and, Deck. And Harry Kane. Greta and, Thunberg's. And, yeah, or Greta. I mean, she's a great comedy Greta. character. I know, I know, I know. And also, you, you do have to poke fun at all sides. And, and it is about how you poke that fun. And it is... Obviously, we don't treat Greta in the way that you would treat Boris because they're different characters. But you can still tease without being nasty and you yes. can still make jokes about her character that are actually very sweet. Um, I'm leaving the Telegraph. This is it. My oh, final mate. podcast. Uh, any advice as I move on to newer climbs? Keep being chopper. Oh, you know, stop the, it. But it's the root of your success is your personality. Okay, I will keep... So wherever you go, you'll be wonderful. You're legend. Listen, Matt Ford, thank you for joining us for my final edition of Chopper's Politics Podcast. Tickets on sale now for Spitting Image. It is assembled at the Phoenix Theatre. Until when? That's until the end of August. And also, I'm doing a, a, my new Edinburgh show, Inside Number 10. Ah. Uh, it's at the Edinburgh Festival from the 2nd of August. Thank you for joining us. Could you say goodbye as Boris Johnson? Well, you're Chopper, right? I was in the era to <laughs> I want to pay tribute no I I, and I, I really do to either, you know the great work that you've done not, not only on this podcast but in the streets and in the fields uh, you know for our great country and I you know I, I mean, Chopper I, as I told you over WhatsApp you know you, you were on that list and Rishi blocked it uh, because he's, a, he's an unpatriotic bastard <laughs> in the Battles of the Redline pub Jacob Reesonwald you've arrived for your podcast recording and you've met Matt Ford who, who yes. does, does your voice in, in Spitting Image Let's see if you can guess who it is. <laughs> Matt, uh, how are you? Or Jacob? 
Well, great to see you, Chopper. And it's not whether I am or I'm not Jacob. Names were a moot point and actually rather nebulous under the British Constitution. You'd be fully aware that under the Magna Carta, it's actually rather improper for you to address me in that way. Now, I'm not calling it treason, but I believe hanging is still the law of the land. <laughs> One should tread carefully in the national interest. <laughs> Jacob Rees-Mogg, you're Matt Ford. I can't. I can't, <laughs> I can't compete. <laughs> Is it weird hearing your voice from someone else's mouth? It's odder when you're listening to the radio and suddenly your voice comes on with words of somebody else. And that is that. And I've been with my children in the car. Yes. And suddenly... On Dead Ringers, for example. Absolutely, absolutely. And suddenly my voice is being said by somebody else as we're driving usually to cricket, actually, their cricket practice in the summer. Yes. And you think, this, this is very strange. Yes. Um, uh, but but uh, knowing it was coming, it's... it's yeah, I've warned you. And, and do you ever think, or do your children say, oh, my dad wouldn't say that? No, no, they, no, they, they, would, they, they, yes. <laughs> no, no, they think it's quite funny. Matt Ford, thank you. Now, after we said goodbye to the fake Jacob Rees-Mogg, I carried on chatting to the real one. Well, Jacob, your alter ego, Matt Ford, has gone. That was a bit weird. Well, as they say, imitation is the greatest form of flattery. Exactly. You know, so, yes, it's all part of the, 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 the part history. Of, we're sitting around, there's, there's, there's cartoons here of... Like, that's like King George or something, I think, being... That's Pitt the Younger, isn't it? Is it Pitt? I can't I th- see, I, I can't read it. I think that's Pitt the Younger sitting on top of... Um, Speaker's chair? The, the throne um, of some kind. We have to talk about politics. It's a political podcast. Partygate, you are in some trouble with your colleagues in the House of Commons. You're shaking your head, but you're, you, you, you may be hauled over the coals next week for calling the, the privileges report, the, the committee, a kangaroo court. Well, I'm not sure about that, actually. We'll have to wait and see. The committee did a supplementary report. Yes. Um, Naming you, though, one uh, of, one yes, of seven MPs. Yes, but there are very precise procedures for the Privileges Committee making an investigation. So a named complaint has to be made privately to the Speaker. The Speaker then has to refer it to the floor of the House. The House then has to vote for an investigation to take place. The Privileges Committee then has to make a report, and the House then has to approve that report. Um, There's lots of stages. There are lots of stages, and there is obviously a question about whether a privileges committee that an individual has been rude about can judge on whether that is a breach of privilege or not, because that is a fundamental point of justice, that you can't have the people who are offended judging on the seriousness of the offence. There's also a further issue now, of course, one of the members of the privileges committee which is now under police investigation. This is very serious because if you look at the questioning that Sir Bernard had of um, Boris Johnson at the Privileges Committee, the thrust of his questioning was, wasn't it obvious what the rules were? How can you tell us that you didn't know? You were the Prime Minister, surely you knew. Well, um, as a physician here myself, that um, uh, Sir Bernard was and still is Chairman of the Liaison Committee, a senior parliamentarian, somebody who'd been involved in the debates on the rules being introduced, uh, knew his way around them, and therefore if he's broken them, and of course he's entitled to the presumption of innocence, even if he wasn't very keen to give that uh, to Boris, but he is entitled to it, if he has broken these rules, that's really serious and leaves him in an incredibly difficult position. What should he do? Should he? I guess the committee is now wound up, isn't it? No, the committee is a committee of the House which remains. Remains. So he it doesn't necessarily have any work unless there's a specific task for it or if it's doing its own investigation. Yes. But but he is still on the committee. But of course, should he, he stand he, down or stand back from this from this whole conversation about? Well, whilst he's being investigated, he should recuse himself from involvement in the committee, and um, he should only come back to it if he's cleared. How can MPs? 
I mean, it doesn't undermine the whole report. I mean, I mean, the report... Well, of course it does. Of course it does. But if you have somebody who produced a report that pontificated in this way, and it now turns out that actually he was breaking... If it does, that he was breaking rules in the same fashion, then it, it fundamentally undermines the report because of the approach to the defence Boris gave. Boris kept on saying... He thought it was in the rules at the time. Which could be burnt. We don't want to know what we don't know what Bernard says about. We don't want what. Well, so far he said it was a work meeting. Mm. Now, which is what Boris said about. Which is what events. Boris said. So, are we have we been applying a different standard to the former prime minister than Sir Bernard wishes it's to apply to himself? Boris arrangement syndrome, which we talked about before, the idea that people, he annoys people, doesn't he, mm. Boris Johnson? Oh, he does. Yes, he annoys people because he's effective. Why didn't you vote against Harriet Harman? There was no point. There was no point. Well, there was a point because I, I revealed, um, um, I have to say, that the, the, the tweets that she wrote about in April last year questioning um, the, the, whether, whether Johnson was guilty or not of breaking the rules. And then, and then two weeks later, there was a vote, an unopposed appointment of Harman to that committee. The appointment of Harman to the committee under the normal convention is a matter for the Labour Party. That, but you uh, could divide, couldn't you? Um, by very strong convention... Very important convention. The government does not oppose the appointment of opposition members to committees. Why? Because the government always has a majority, could stop any opposition member of any committee ever being on it, and that would be unparliamentary. Uh, I actually voted, I'm not sure this was the right thing to do, um, for Keith Vaz to be on the Home Affairs Committee when there was a division on that. Not because I was voting for Keith Vaz, but for the principle that the opposition has this right of appointment. All parties are in opposition eventually, and these types of constitutional uh, acceptances are really important. So although you had revealed it, it would have been for the Labour Party and for Harriet Harman to recuse her, not for the government to vote against an opposition of... Because that way lies chaos. Well, that, that, because, that, um, that, that, way, that way lies uh, committees that are entirely made up of government stooges. Yes, yeah, so you have to have a, a follow what's happened before. And that, that, that's right, society. that's okay. right. Okay. Rishi Sunak, how's he doing? He's missing PMQs this week, next week. Is he avoiding MPs? Look, I think Rishi is doing as well as anybody could in very difficult circumstances. I think we should target our fire uh, at the Bank of England that has bungled. And He's safe till 2028, Andrew Bailey, isn't he? Well, I think there may be a way of um, dealing how, with how it. Would you, you, how would you winkle him out, then? You can always legislate. Pass a law. I mean, it, it's, it's by law that he is, he is there. Mm. But... That'd be, people, quite, that'd be quite a moment, wouldn't it? People sometimes resign when they've failed in their jobs. So it's not impossible. Is it the right thing to do? I you might unspook the market. I think, I think that's right. There is a risk in it. But there is no question that Bailey has done a bad job so is far. Model, is the model broken, taking a monetary policy away from the Treasury, which is brought in by Gordon Brown in 1997? The Treasury has very much the same thinking of the Bank of England. I don't think you've got very different monetary policy if you'd had it run by the Treasury, but democratic accountability is is important. I think there's a bigger question as to whether inflation target by central banks has been right and whether the Greenspan approach to constantly trying to smooth the economic cycle has actually been the best way to run an economy in the long term. Obviously, when you're smoothing the cycle, and particularly when you're stopping a, a downturn, that is temporarily good. Yeah, politically good as well. Politically good. No one wants downturns. No one wants downturns, but uh, actually economic cycles come and go, and the Conservatives won an election in 1992 when the economy was really on the floor, and lost one in 1997 when the economy was doing very well. So the political and economic cycle don't always match. 
but that have we just stored up bigger problems by the efforts to smooth and therefore the quantitative easing which has had an inflationary effect in the end uh, there's a, a brilliant book by Edward Chancellor called The Price of Time which goes through where the central banks have got it wrong and I find his argument extremely convincing but that's the problem for Rishi Sunak because people aren't saying up and down the high streets of England I'm blaming Andrew Bailey most of them haven't heard of Andrew Bailey they're saying I'm blaming the Tories and that's a problem for us but that's politics but that's politics because you guys are in charge so yeah. you're, you're blamed for it that's absolutely right what couldn't he do Rishi Sunak to pull himself out of this this long way behind the polls behind Keir Starmer um well, I think we should do things that help the economy, so supply-side reforms. This is why I was so keen on the change EU law bill, because it was a deregulatory bill. Mm. We should not do that's which, losing 4,000 redundant EU laws. That, that's right. Um, and getting rid of laws. We, we need to look at the working time directive and things like that. Um, that, that show benefits of Brexit. Maybe. Show benefits of Brexit and open up the economy. Make it cheaper for people to do business in this country. We should look at some of the EU-related laws like the um, nutrients requirement that is stopping planning going ahead, mm-hmm. stopping building work taking place, is stopping economic activity. So we should look into all those yeah. things and getting rid of um, uh, regulations where we How can. How about net migration, getting grip on that? We have to get net migration down. But that was your, your government. Boris Johnson released those rules and <clears throat> half a million arriving is he, he, on him. It's his fault. That's a control issue. I, I think we need proper controls. It's what people voted for in Brexit. Uh, and there is a Treasury argument that migration leads to GDP growth. Well, the ABR leads, say so. The, well, ABR. The, a, the ABR is idiotic. The ABR ignores the fact that it decreases GDP per capita and is part of the productivity problem that the UK economy has been suffering from because instead of investing in equipment or in skills, we invest in cheap labour. Uh, and the, the ABR seems to become a complete lefty... They're assuming 220,000 net migration for 10 years. Well, it's an absolute madness. That's where the size we, of Coventry for 10 years. Where are we going to house them? Well, we're not and, building, and the, we're not building the, the houses. And what are we doing about domestic skills? What are we doing about the 5 million people in this country? And that's what this, this group, this new conservative group, is yes, saying. And, and they're absolutely right. They're, 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 uh, and it's what the voters want. Mm. It, w- w- but the voters don't want to work in the fields, do they? That's the problem. Why, why are we setting up an economy based on picking fruit? This is completely stupid. What is the comparative advantage? The comparative advantage is to pick fruit in countries where labour rates are cheap, that the labour should be where it's cheap, not come here to do things that are economically unproductive. We, we but you can't let the, the fruit rot in the field. No, you shouldn't plant the fruit in the first place. You should be planting things that can be harvested mechanically. That's where we've got an economic advantage. This is, this is the basics of free trade. You focus on what you have a comparative advantage in, which you can do profitably and productively. The, the um, drug of cheap labour has meant that we've kept on doing things which we're not productive at, which we shouldn't be doing. They should be going on in other countries. Or we should be investing, and this doesn't work for all soft fruits, but it works for lots, uh, in the equipment that can pick mechanically in an automated way without having to import uh, labour. But this applies not just to cheap labour to pick fruit, it also applies to social care. What can you do with a combination of, of AI and remote monitoring that reduces your staffing levels? In Japan, they're using AI to provide company for elderly people who don't have any family. And the AI is brilliant because 
you know how it is. You have a conversation with me, and yes. um, you see me the next day, and you've forgotten half what I've said. <laughs> if you're a computer and you're operating on IA, you remember everything I've said, and you say, "Well, um, yes. how, how's, how's carry that? on conversation?" That's right. That's, that's, that's right. That's right. And you, you you remember that I've got toothache or whatever it is, <laughs> um, and and this yep. actually improves the level of care. Yep. And why aren't we doing it? We're because we're dependent yep. on cheap labour from abroad, which we think is economically beneficial, because the ABR is a really bad institution. And I mean, it, it was a very good institution, incidentally, under Robert Choate, who ran it extremely yes. well and sensibly. And since he went, it's gone downhill. How does your party win a fifth term in government from this point? Because I, I think your last chance was having Johnson in the north, Sunak in the south, bringing it together next summer for a campaign. I, I can't see how it happens now. Well, it was very difficult to see how we were going to win in 2019 until the election came. Uh, Political events change sometimes quite rapidly. Um, We may find that interest rates start declining sooner than people expect. If inflation does turn down, um, the interest rate rise may have uh, had its effect. Bear in mind, inflation is a lagging indicator. So a little bit of economic uh, growth, a little bit of improvement on the small boats, and Keir Starmer is not Mr. Charisma. Any, Any advice for a journalist leaving somewhere after 20 years? Well, no, but it's an opportunity to say thank you for um, all the interesting stories you've broken for Telegraph readers over many years, the insights you've had into politics, the courtesy with which you've dealt with your political associates and friends. Oh, thank um, you. And uh, how pleased I am we're going to be uh, working together on GB News from the 14th of August. That's right. Well, listen, Jacob rees it's great to have you on. You're, you're on the 911th guest, I think, or whatever the figure is, 8.2 million listens. Thanks for joining us for my last Choppers Politics Podcast. Thank Thank you. you. And I'm reassured you had 910 other guests. (laughs) Not all the same people. (laughs) Jacob Rees-Mogg, thank you. Coming up, Michael Gove has some news on a campaign close to my heart. Yes, folks, it's time to bring back Britannia. Right after this. In March, the Daily Telegraph broke a story. Former Health Secretary Matt Hancock has described the leaking of thousands of his WhatsApp messages. The Daily Telegraph says it's obtained thousands of WhatsApp messages. On the 100,000 leaked WhatsApp messages revealed. Some poor so-and-sos had to go through those. And now, those same poor so-and-sos are going deeper. The stunning incompetence of the British state was absolutely extraordinary. The Covid inquiry may be underway. They definitely knew what they were doing when they took them out of the hospitals into the care homes. But you shouldn't have to wait years for answers. You've got lockdown. There is no way that that isn't going to have a massive impact. If I had sit on that material to protect politicians' dark secrets, I don't think that would have been an honourable thing to do. The Lockdown Files podcast from The Telegraph. Follow now, wherever you're listening to this, to make sure you don't miss an episode. Now you wait for one big beast of the Tory party to come along and two turn up in the pub at the same time. Michael Gove, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. Well, Chris, it's a pleasure to be here uh, on this historic occasion. And uh, it's bittersweet. There's an element of sadness about this because it's your last podcast. But in a way, you go out on a high because it's a bit like Alex Ferguson leaving Manchester United. You have a record of success, which is matchless. And now (laughs) you're going on to a new challenge with GB News. Um, And and I think there you will have a team of other broadcasters uh, amongst whom you will excel. 
Yes. So I'm looking forward to tuning in regularly to see you on GB News, <laughs> uh, which is, of course, the People's Channel. It is. That's, that's, yes, yes. And how, how, what's your advice for someone leaving a national paper after two decades? Because you left the Times after two decades, didn't you? Yes, I did and leave became the an Times MP. and became an MP. Similarly, I left a national institution, a great newspaper, in order to join a, a group of people of varying levels of, um, yes, what's the word? Uh, interest to the public. <laughs> a startup. A startup. <laughs> um, by David Cameron. Uh, yes. No, but the, th- the thing is that you, you, you can uh, leave having uh, your head held high because yes. you've been behind some of the biggest scoops that the Telegraph has had. Yes. Um, and from the expenses scandal through to being a newsbreaker almost every day, yes. you, you have, you have nothing best. to prove. Nothing to prove in the journalistic world. And so I think that the next stage... Uh, of broadcasting, I think will win you a new set of fans Thank and admirers. That's very generous. Because I actually wrote your MP expenses report, didn't I? I, do, I remember you it. You remember me phoning you up? I do. I just, I was about ju- the elephant lamps. And I, I had just left church. Um, <laughs> I felt like going I back in. I felt even worse. It was I, a felt, sun- I felt like going back in at that time and praying. I've got to ask you a question someone put to me. You, 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 people now think you invented the term, don't let the enemy be the perfect, the enemy of the good about Brexit. But that was Voltaire, apparently. It was, yes. Uh, and do, he wasn't do you, advising me at the time. No, no. But he, so you know it was Voltaire, because yes. someone said, go saying it was he said it. No, no. No, no, no. I, no. I, 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 I said it a lot. You always say it was Voltaire, yes. as Voltaire once said. No, no, there are certain cliches which I do use in politics a lot. One is, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Yes. The other is, no good deed goes unpunished. Yes. Um, and the third one, which is also from Voltaire, which is that when people suggest to me doing something which in yes minister terms might be called brave, I always, <laughs> I always remind them what Voltaire said on his deathbed when the priest um, uh, invited him to reject the devil and all his works. Voltaire <laughs> said, look, this is no time to make new enemies. All, all careers, all careers end in a degree of failure. Do you think it was right to leave journalism? Have you done it? You've had a good time mm. and you are seen by across the board by the minister who tries to change things mm. and doesn't accept the status quo. You did that in environment, you certainly did that in education. Brexit was the ultimate mm. summary of that, wasn't it? Yes, I think so. And I, again... Uh, You're on I, the field, not watching the field. Yeah, it? I enjoy journalism. Uh, and I think that uh, there are certain things in journalism, certainly in reporting, that help in politics. So being able to get to the heart of uh, an issue, being able to take a, a, a mass of information and to try to summarise it so you know what the essentials are, I think that that does help. Um, uh, As a minister, because you can sort yes. of see through all the, the reams of... Yes, and, 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 and the, again, there are other professions and other jobs which also equip you in different and complementary ways. Legal, being a lawyer, for example. Uh, being a lawyer. Um, but I also think, uh, though there aren't many on the Conservative benches, if you've been a trade unionist, understanding how effectively to represent a large group of people and to achieve something in a negotiation. So there are different skill sets that help in politics. You're blamed by lots of the right for things that go wrong for the for the Brexiteer right. Do, do you know this? They they see your hand in everything. Really? And I think that I say you, you're, I just look at them. And go well. It's like for me, it's not quite a Gove der- derangement syndrome, but it's like the Boris derangement syndrome, where he's blamed for everything that goes wrong. Well, but the right always bl- they always pin it on you, and I always phone your your, your your guy Josh and say they're saying this about Michael, and they say yeah, they always say everything about Michael, you know. Well, I think uh, two things. One, I think you are right that there are people who their dislike of Boris uh, blots out their capacity to, to make a rounded judgment of him. It's not um, just like of you, though. They're not there. Well, I, I, yes, I, I, like, like, I was going to say they that, like you. I mean, <laughs> but I, th- I think I think in politics you sometimes get credit for things you don't deserve and blamed for things that aren't your fault, and you just yes. got to take the rough with the smooth. What are the achievements of thirteen years now of Conservative government? 
I do think the podcast can go on long enough um, for us to list them. Okay, in, in, the, the top one, the top two. Well, I think undoubtedly one of the most important has been the transformation of education. And this is down to a team Free schools. Well, we, we are now fourth in the world when it comes to literacy for children. Um, and that is... Nick Gibb drove, drove that. Exactly. It's also the case that uh, we moved up the league tables in numeracy and in science as well. And we have a record number of good and outstanding schools. And that wouldn't have happened without... Uh, David Cameron and George Osborne's leadership. And Tony Blair. So, so well, crit- critics say to me, well, the Academy's programme was, was, a, was a, a Labour thing and the Tories built an act with free schools. I, I, think, I think we really transformed it, but I won't take anything away from Blair or Adonis, or indeed, to be fair, uh, David Laws. Um, he took a little bit of heat from other Liberal Democrats for supporting it. So I think that is a significant achievement. I think also the case, the fact that we have record employment. So if we look back to IDS's work on welfare and the continuation now on, exactly, we, we, we made work pay. I also think, um, to quote Ed Balls, we've had two big, at least two big economic shocks recently with the war and COVID. And yet our economy is still in the growth zone. And Ed Balls acknowledged that it, it, that, you know, that was on the basis of the economic fundamentals, the good decisions that had been made previously and the good stewardship that Rishi had as chancellor. But actual things which are Tory policies are harder to define. Brexit wasn't policy. That was, that was obviously an idea which, mm. which the public voted for with your support. Even raising the, the, the minimal threshold of income mm. tax to 12,000, that was a Lib Dem policy. Mm. Universal credit was a Tory policy. Yes. You know, I look at, look at I, IHT, which mm. George Osmond pushed very hard, didn't he? And that didn't happen, even though it was going to happen in 2015, didn't happen. I mean, it, it, do you worry that the, the Tories were squandered? actual Tory policies? No, I don't. I'm, I'm tempted to say, let's not make the perfect the enemy of the good. And I think that there are all sorts of policies which are distinctively conservative because we shouldn't allow ourselves to be defined simply by one set of priorities. So if you take the environment as well, it was Margaret Thatcher who was the first Western politician to raise the alarm on climate change. And the work that Michael Howard did as environment secretary in the 1990s has a direct link to the work that we were doing in order to make sure that we restored nature. The changes that we made to the way in which we support agriculture, of course helping farmers, but also paying them to make sure that nature recovers rather than simply on the size of their landholding. These are conservative yes. things. It's about the stewardship of the planet. Have we as a country got too used to the state being involved in our lives post-COVID? I think there Is are that, questions. Yes. retreat a bit. Yes. COVID required intervention Every Western country recognised that. But I do sometimes worry about certain things. So most recently, for example, South Cambridgeshire Council moving to a four-day week. I just think it's wrong when you've got uh, the people who are paying uh, the council taxpayers for local services to see a Lib Dem council basically relaxing on its oars and saying, well... you're in well, charge of councils. What do you do about it? Uh, well, we've, what have banned them doing from doing uh, it? We, we, we have taken action. I was at the LGA conference uh, earlier this week. I was asked about it. I said totally wrong and Lee Rowley superstar of the future uh, who is in my department has told them where to get off and when telling them where to get off will, it, will they get off or can they just ignore you uh, there are steps that Lee can take but uh, yes. as ever yes. um, with, with when you've got someone like who's a tough negotiator like Lee he wouldn't show his hand okay. too prominently before him just on planning critics say you've surrendered on housing targets and your new policy is building things beautifully and hope it works 
Is that a policy? Yeah, well, we need to build beautifully. Yes, um, no, uh, no one uh, doubts co- that. Completely. But no, we haven't surrendered on housing targets. Um, what, what we have done is said that if a local authority recognises that either the green belt would have to be sacrificed or an area of outstanding natural beauty would have to be lost, yes. then it can accommodate that yes. into its plan. But you can't evade, no local authority can evade building homes. And if local authorities don't adopt plans, then it will be the case that there'll, there'll be teeth there in order to make sure that homes are built. And Labour's policy, a bit more bold, aren't they? They're saying that they can take off the the money that farmers make on land surrounding towns and villages and, and remove that, that premium. Well, th- that is actually our policy. It's in our it? bill. Yes, we've, we've said, um, and I'm, I'm so sorry to mention I'm this. I'm so sorry. I no, know no, no, not at all, because there is something called hope value. Now, I'm a great oh, believer right, yes. in hope value. I provide hope value daily. Uh, yes, and valuing hope. But uh, there is a, a principle that when uh, land is compulsively purchased, which, which you should only do sparingly, but sometimes you do need to do it, that you pay top whack for it. Yes. We've got legislation in the levelling up bill saying, actually, in the public interest, you can pay slightly less than that. That means that the landowner gets a fair deal, but it also means the community gets more cash back for new homes. Are you pro-garden cities? Yes, totally. I visited one in Suella Bravon's constituency. It's called Wellborn. It is a beautiful settlement. The architect involved, uh, Ben Pentreath, was involved in Poundbury. The landscaper architect is, a again, someone who's worked with the king in order to create the right sort of rich, green, beautiful environment. That's the future. Yes. Do you have a mortgage? I don't at the moment, no. So you're not affected by, by the cost of living crisis or the soaring interest rates? I'm affected by the cost of living crisis like everyone else yes. um, with my daily and weekly shop, but yes. I don't have a mortgage at the moment, no. no. Do you t- use the term cosy lives? Sorry? Do you call it the cosy lives? No, I don't call it the cosy lives. Apparently that's what some people in the White House call it. Is that like the platy-jubes? <laughs> yeah, the, the platinum jubilee, correct. Yes, yes. Why should anyone under 40 vote Conservative? Uh, because we're the party of hope, aspiration, opportunity, the party of the environment, the party of high educational standards. But you're also the, the tired, party, of part, the tired party and a party that's had its, had its chance. Tired? Have you seen the energy <laughs> you're display? You're not tired. You're not Have tired. you seen the energy display by our ministerial team? Uh, Claire Coutinho isn't tired. Laura Trott isn't tired. Lee Rowley isn't tired. Rachel McLean is firing in all cylinders. Yes. And even those people who are temporarily on the back benches, like Sir Geoffrey Cox, they are firing <laughs> on all <laughs> cylinders. Uh, you know, far from being someone who is, you know, Bairstow like walking away from the crease, uh, Geoffrey is there playing constitutional basketball every week. <laughs> we'll come to Geoffrey Cox in a minute. In 2016, you said that you'd come to the conclusion reluctantly that Boris Johnson can't provide the leadership or build a team for the task ahead. You were right, weren't you? Well, historians will pass a judgment on that. You know, the, the thing is, I worked alongside Boris um, uh, during the time he was Prime Minister, um, and there are no shortage of people queuing up to criticise him. Some of those criticisms, I think, have some justification, but I don't want to join that queue. Is there a thing called Boris derangement syndrome? He's blamed for all the ills of the country. Uh, I think it is the case that Boris, both amongst his supporters, inspires a loyalty which sometimes makes them blind to one, two of his faults, and amongst <laughs> his detractors, inspires a sense of rage that also means that they ignore his virtues. And I think that he deserves to be judged in the round. And Brexit couldn't be done without, could not have been done without him. Yeah. Talking about priorities, when you left government in 2016... You, for a period on the backbenches, yes. and you supported a really good idea for a new Royal Yacht Britannia. Yes. 
Do you stand by that? Uh, I think so. But to, to use a phrase that I've used in a different context, now is not the time. So <laughs> no, I do, there's a war on. Yes. I do think that the, uh, the principle of having a national flagship, which can act both as a way of uh, projecting our soft power, which can act as a, a floating embassy to encourage trade and investment, uh, which can also be used, uh, uh, as has been suggested in the past, to provide young people with amazing training opportunities. I think there's a lot there. Mm-hmm. Provided there is no cost to the taxpayer, I think that is a good idea. But at the moment, when there are so many other priorities that yep. we need to address, um, I would I would leave it for another day. Yes, and the project was cancelled to pay for two ships to look after under, underwater internet cables, which is probably be- the right thing to do given yes. Russia's behaviour. How will history judge Michael Gove? I don't know. Um, I th- I'm not sure that history will necessarily note many of the things that I've done because there are other more significant figures um, upon whom uh, you are the most Cleo will, um, you know... Uh, <laughs> Cleo's uh, book. Well, <laughs> Cleo the Muse. Oh, um, sorry, I think that's all. More, the more significant <laughs> figures upon whom she will devote her attention. Well, Michael Gove, thank you for supporting this podcast. Thank you for talking to me over the years at The Telegraph. And I hope that carries on. No, it's an absolute pleasure, Chris. Good luck for the future. I know The Telegraph will be uh, a lesser paper for your lot, though still a great national institution. And GB News, The People's Channel, looking forward to catching you there um, every day. Thank you, Michael Gove, for the last time joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Michael Gove, thank you. And there's just time before last orders to sneak in one more guest here at the Red Lion Pub. Please welcome a man who's been a firm friend of the podcast for years and years. He also happens to have the smoothest voice in politics. It's like velvet. Sir Geoffrey Cox, KC MP, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's an enormous privilege. It's great to have you on. Not, guest number 914 or 13 or something. 8.2 million listens. 350 or so episodes. All things must pass. Have you ever left anything after a long time? Probably lots of things and probably more <laughs> I should have done. But no, this is a, a very yes. emotive moment, Chris. It it's is. a valedictory. I feel I helped to, in a small way, create Geoffrey Cox, the reader. I think when I first got you on to read The Night Before Christmas... Yes, yes, and it you went. Did. The world yeah. at one put it out. Yeah, and they did. Others, others, and yeah, I'm, I'm, I want to help you yeah, when you want to end your political career. My dear career. Chris, if I need an agent soon, I, I will. <laughs> I will think of you immediately. But I do hope that your new career will offer yes. bright prospects, and you won't be lost as a voice. No, a critical I'm, but measured voice. Yes, and in we'll, the fourth estate. Yes, I mean, and you've you've had your bumps on the road with the fourth estate. I mean, you, do we get the journalism we deserve? Do you think? I make <clears> no <throat> complaints about journalists doing their job. It's an occupational hazard for a politician, and scrutiny is what he yes. or she has to. It's important, though, isn't face. it? It is. They may sometimes cross lines that those of us who are under scrutiny would prefer they didn't, mm. but. The function they perform is essential, and I suspect is going to go on being essential, and even more essential in years to come. Yes, and, what, and how about you? You're standing next election, aren't you? I am. You've been under fire over, you, you're an office holder, but you earn money as a barrister. I mean, but you're, you've fought every election for a number of years with these criticisms, and people vote you back in. Well, as you know, it's, it's, it's a very traditional thing for senior barristers to do, to continue their practice at the bar while they're MPs. If we hadn't had that, we wouldn't have had many very distinguished politicians going back to F.E. Smith, but right up to current days. You know, Bob Marshall Andrews and uh, Alex Carlyle, they all practiced while they were... John Smith. John Smith. Former Labour leader. Wasn't around for an entire year, I think, for memory, uh, uh, in the over, early 80s. Over a year, doing a murder case in Glasgow. Yes, no one batted an eyelid. Well, he, 
whether, whether they didn't or did, or did <laughs> that's, that was the tradition in which I grew up and mm. I was familiar with members of parliament practicing in the courts when I was a young barrister. And mm. It was the model I wanted to follow. It's hard to explain that, though, in one tweet. It is. Why you have office holders, why you have different types of people in politics. Yeah. No, no, it is. I mean, and, and I understand. I mean, it's right that people should mm. question. It's right people should promote different models. But at the moment, that is what the rules permit. It enables people to come into Parliament who probably wouldn't otherwise have done if they're able to continue their professions. I think it's a good thing for Parliament, but I'm yes. quite aware there are contrary views, and it's, I respect them. Sajid Javid this week is being quite interesting. As he, as, he, as he leaves Parliament, he's saying interesting things about the NHS. He also said he thought there should be maybe half as many MPs and pay them twice as much to get a different standard of MP. Well, you see, I, I have a t t completely different view from that. I mean, yes. my, my view is that what you do is you allow outside occupations within reason, that is to say, clearly, and if they are worth anything, if they hold, as I do, a really profound view of the solemnity of the job and responsibility we have as members of Parliament, they will devote their lives. You know, I've been 20, nearly 20 years a member of parliament 25 years fighting in my own constituency i live there my children have been schooled there my wife runs marathons for local charities i cheer her on i don't <laughs> run them but you know we, we are and have been embedded in that community where my father was schooled where my family have come from mm. for generations and i am completely committed to it but i also believe that it is a healthy thing to be able to continue in my yes. case as a senior barrister but were I a doctor or anything else I think it would, it's a good thing for Parliament. How do you rate the end of Boris Johnson? Do you think we're moving into a period of, of a more of a respect for rules? In a sense I think back to your the, 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 the legal opinion you gave on Theresa May's Brexit deal in um, March April 2019 and the pressure on you was huge but you said in that two-page letter to her I'll paraphrase, this is not leaving the European Union. It means that we are still on the hook for bits of the Brussels infrastructure. That provides the support for the final vote on Meaningful Vote 3 for those who opposed it. And it stopped that Brexit happening and gave us the Brexit we have now. And you were able to do that because no one ever questioned your motivation, why you did it. It was done because you were, had respect for the law. You're a very, very eminent barrister. That matters, doesn't it? What matters is people have a unshakable belief and conviction and support for essential institutions and <clears throat> principles. The one principle that I was mindful of throughout this is that I was the Attorney General and my duty to the country and the whole of the British people was to deliver an opinion that I truly believed in, was <coughs> truly objective and was not uh, subject to alteration because of my desire for political support for a particular position. That's extremely brave. Well, it, it, well, well, it, it wasn't really, Chris, and this is what I've said several times before, I think possibly even to you. I'd spent nearly 40 years in a profession which values professional independence. If you've been brought up, it's the buttons of your being, your profession. It, it is, as Bacon said, a, a, every man owes his profession his being. And to me, it was simply a necessity. I didn't feel that I could compromise for a moment the professional independence that, that, that I needed to show as Attorney General. But whether the consequences were, as you say, I'm not sure. Mm. That's a matter 
for history to judge. Unusually, of course, yes, you talk about being a barrister and opinion, but you relied on your, your position in the Cabinet on the Prime Minister, who was asking you to support her deal to unlock Brexit, and you chose to go with your opinion rather than doing something to please the boss. No, no, no. The Prime Minister never did ask me that. No. The, pri- the Prime Minister made it quite clear from the start that sh- I should deliver the opinion that I properly thought was the right one. I never had a feather's weight of pressure from the Prime Minister, and she acted, if I may say so, with consummate propriety in the situation. And constitutionally, that's important. I just wonder whether, with this Partygate report and the, the Boris Johnson being forced out of politics, or rather quitting as an MP after that report came out, is that, do you think, our constitution flexing? That was the Parliament saying... We don't have it. It's not, nothing's written down in this country, so it re- requires the people in the institutions to ensure that well, the constitution I, I, works. I think, having read the report carefully, as you will have done, I think what the report is redolent of is a committee applying mature standards of accountability <coughs> to that which ministers say at the dispatch box. Mm. Those standards are exactly the same standards that a High Court judge would have applied of ordinary citizens every day in this country in the courts of England and Wales. It is a court too, isn't it? In a a sense. But what the committee did, and I don't agree with every part of it, but in essence what the committee did was to apply exactly the standards that a judge would have applied to any one of us, to any ordinary citizen in a court, of accountability for the statements that were made. And the basis of the committee's opinion was to compare the experience that was objectively established and very clearly evidenced that the Prime Minister of the day had plainly had with the statements he had made in the House. And while, as I say, I don't agree with every aspect of it, I think the committee was perfectly entitled on the evidence to reach the view it did, and that's why I supported it. Mm. What's your advice for me? Blimey, Chris, that Good is luck. an extraordinary thing. My, my advice to you is go on being what you are, which is one of the <laughs> most urbane, civilised, uh, but, but, but also sharp-edged, if I may say so, uh, of, of political critics. And we're going to need you in the coming years. Um, there will be a very important need for serious journalists. So, Jeffrey Cox, thank you for being the last ever guest on Chopper's Politics Podcast. It's it been is. great to have you on. You've been on several times. I have, and it's been a great privilege. It's great Chris. to have you on. So, Jeffrey Cox, thank you. And that, as they say, is that. Hundreds of episodes, millions of listens, but just one red line pub. Thank you to my guests this week Matt Ford, Michael Gove, Sir Jacob Rees-Mogg, and Sir Jeffrey Cox. Thank you to all of my producers over the years Andy McKenzie, Theodora Lululudis. Louisa Wells, Giles Gere, Elliot Lampett, and many, many more. But most importantly of all, thank you to you for listening for all these years. Whether this is your 350th episode of listening or your first, a heartfelt thank you. And Chopper's Politics Podcast is going nowhere. It remains on the Telegraph website. It's there on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and that thing called the internet. You can also catch your daily dose of Chopper, that's me, on GB News, where I'm the new political editor from the middle of August. Please do tune in and hope you enjoy it. And make sure you keep reading The Telegraph and its website too. There's not too much left for me to say. It's like the end of Lord of the Rings. (laughs) 
I'll sail you off into the sunset. So I might let the man with the golden voice do it for me. Here is Geoffrey Cox reading from A Tale of Two Cities. In the meantime, dear friends, for the very last time, cheerio. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.